Hi and welcome to Malicious Life in collaboration with Cyber Reason. This episode is a recording of the live event we held last Wednesday with roughly 100 listeners who joined me and Israel Barak to discuss the latest development in the evolution of ransomware, multi-stage ransomware. I gotta admit, nothing beats the adrenaline and excitement of live events. I love it. And the cherry on top was a tweet by Jay Granners who wrote, quote, Watching the Malicious Life webinar, and I gotta say, Rand Levy looks a lot more badass than I imagined. End quote. Ha! I agree. Thanks, Jay Ganners, and all the listeners who attended the event. Enjoy the episode. So, at the very core of this podcast, and I'm sure many of you know, is the one and only Rand Levy. He's the host and uh, writer of the podcast. Uh, not the only writer, but, uh, but definitely one of the core ones. Uh, he's, some would say, the heart of the podcast. Ron uh, wrote several books on the topic of cybersecurity. And uh, after three years of researching stories for Malicious Life, uh, he probably knows more about cybersecurity than he'd ever dreamed. So I just wanted to give him that introduction. And without further ado, I want to pass this over to Ron. Thank you, Eliad. Yes, it's been uh, quite a ride in uh, cybersecurity. Every year is something new. And uh, we've got something new here today as well. So, hi, listeners. Welcome to Malicious Life's first live recording event. Greeting to all of our listeners who are now watching us live in this event, some of whom already send in the, sent in their questions for our guest today, Israel Barak. So we'll get to that in a second, but first let me introduce uh, Israel. Israel Barak, Cyber Reasons CISO, is a cyber defense and warfare expert with extensive background working for the government, where he established and operated various cyber warfare teams. Israel spent years training, guiding, and professionally mentoring new personnel, providing in-depth cyber expertise as it relates to cyber warfare, cybersecurity, and threat actors' tactics and procedures. Israel is also a regular speaker at leading cybersecurity industry conferences and events. Hi, Israel. Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Ron. Thank you for having me. And we've got also here with us today, Nate Nelson, who is the senior producer of our show. As Eliad mentioned, he's uh, one of the main writers of the show, and uh, he does most of the research and most of the interviews that you hear on the podcast. So uh, the first part of my conversation with Israel will be focused on ransomware, and in particular, multi-stage ransomware. And the second part will be more general, and we'll discuss cybersecurity in general. And of course, we'll answer questions, both the ones you've already sent us and any questions you'll have for us during this live event. Also, during the event, I will ask you, our live audience, some question, some questions, rather, and you'll be able to answer them in real time. That will be fun. So without further delay, let's dive right into the topic of our conversation today. And I want to start, Israel, with an interesting experiment that you and Cyberreason did a few months ago with a honeypot you created. Now, I'm sure most of our listeners already know what a honeypot is, but for those who might not be familiar with the term, we're talking about a system that is designed to mimic a likely cybersecurity target. 
so as to lure attackers to go after it. In this case, your honeypot Israel was emulating the network of an electricity company, which is quite interesting. So first thing first, what were you hoping to learn from that experiment? Well, the primary thing that we focus on is, is trying to learn what the current trends are. in uh, attacker tactics and techniques. Um, how are they shifting from targeting specific type of enterprises to targeting other types of enterprises? What is more popular, less popular? What is the collaboration between different attack groups look like and how they leverage each other's resources and capabilities? Uh, and, and, and really the, the method in which we, we operate is to not assume in advance what we're going to find in that honeypot. We basically we create the facade of an appealing target in a particular segment of the market, and then we cast a fairly wide net. We make it very apparent that that target is there. We try to make it very apparent that it is an appealing target to a specific sector of attackers. And then we basically keep it up and running for a while, usually a couple of months. And wait and see what comes our way. We deploy a network of sensors within the honeypot so we can always understand what is happening in that environment. But we try to first and foremost stay hands off in terms of not making it extremely difficult for an attacker to set initial access into the environment. We sort of even invite them in to a certain extent. But once they're in, that's when we start focusing on what they're doing and exa understanding exactly how they're going through their motions. What are they after? How are they doing this? How are they operating and how are they running the operation? What happens uh, outside of the honeypot? Are they using the data that they're taking from the honeypot in any way? Are they interacting with other groups based on that data and their observations? Are they bringing in other parties they're collaborating with? And so... During that process, we are not completely passive. Sometimes we would try to mimic the response of that enterprise. We would try to stop their attack to a certain extent, but really not sufficiently good enough to actually stop what they're doing, just to give them the feeling that they're in a, in a real-world environment. It's a theater of cybersecurity, I think, uh, would be a great, uh, a great name. I understand that you managed to fool some attackers at least, What were they doing in the network once, once they uh, uh, entered it? Well, I think the, uh, the clearest trend that we saw in this research was around uh, ransomware attacks. Uh, what we saw was that, uh, in, especially when you compare it with honeypods that we ran in previous years, significantly more of the ransomware attacks on the honeypod used a tactic that is referred to as a uh, multi-stage ransomware attack. And, and that specific tactic can have a major impact on, on large organizations. Uh, basically, uh, it, I, I would say as, as part of this tactic, what the attacker would do is they would um, gain access into a network, and then they would start moving in the network. You know what, Israel, before we go on uh, with multi-stage attack, I think we should probably create you know, a baseline for our listeners. What is a single attack? Uh, stage uh, ransomware attack? Uh, a single stage ransomware attack is uh, essentially when the uh, a user clicks on a phishing uh, email and, and, and the machine on which that user is, is, is working is, is, you know, has a ransomware infection and, and multiple files, usually data files, get encrypted. 
and then that user is presented with a, uh, a ransom a ransom demand note. But those usually impact just those are, uh, we often refer to them as detonate on impact type ransomware. So the, the, the second you click on that thing, it starts running, it encrypts whatever it finds on that machine, and then it posts that ransom demand. Those are classic ransomware attacks. And I think over the course of the past years, we've seen a certain peak in them, probably around um, you know late 2018, early 2019. And during late 2019 into 2020, we're seeing a certain decline in the amount of those single stage ransomware attacks. There are still very high numbers, but there's a certain decline in terms of trend. So in your experiment, you're seeing a different tactic, multi-stage ransomware. Correct. Um, what we saw there, the multi-stage attack tactic basically involves uh, a situation where the attacker is, is, is operating a hacking operation. Right. So when they first start by making sure that they have access into a network, that can be a user that clicks on a file and an attachment. It can be in some other ways. But once they have access to the network, they put the ransomware in there, but they don't detonate it. They first try to maximize the impact of their attack on the target so they can be at a place where they can have maximum leverage to gain, get as much ransom payment out of that activity as possible. The way they do that, and that's why it's called multi-stage attack, is that the first stage involves trying to um, move in the environment. From that single point of entry, they discover user credentials, basically passwords. Then they try to use these passwords to move around the network and impact other systems, gain control of other systems. On each system that they get to, they go through the same process of they take data and they exfiltrate it. They take user credentials. They put the ransomware on that impacted asset, but they don't detonate. And then they keep moving in the network until they've exhausted their capability to spread across the network. And the idea is to reach as, 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 as important assets as possible, as critical assets as possible in the network. Once they've exhausted their capability to move around the network, they then detonate the ransomware that they deployed in the environment across all these impacted assets at the same time. Once the ransomware has, has detonated and there's a, there's a large scale denial of service, usually as, as, as a result of that, they also follow up very commonly with a ransom demand that involves threats to expose the data that they've stolen, the user credentials that they've stolen. And again, the idea is at that point in time to gain maximum leverage on the victim to pay usually a ransom sum that ranges between the five and six digits in dollars. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've discussed this topic with Asaf Dahan, another researcher for Cyber Reason, who called this uh, uh, form of action blackmail as opposed to ransomware. Because now that the attackers have some sensitive information, they can also blackmail you and pay that you have to pay just not to reveal the information. But my common sense tells me that because the attackers are staying inside the network and are moving laterally, stealing and manipulating the network, it should be relatively easier to detect such an attack and stop it before it, the, the ransomware actually detonates, as, as you called it. Uh, is my common sense here correct? 
Yeah, it is. It is correct. Um, on, on the one hand, and I think there are two aspects to it. On the one hand, multi-stage ransomware attacks, and we saw what happened at Garmin, and I think every every incident that we see recently in the news where the ransom sum exceeds the five, six digits, those are the multi-stage ransomware campaigns. So on the one hand, those um, multi-stage attacks represent a much higher risk to enterprises because most enterprises, if a single endpoint is, is compromised or loses data, that doesn't represent a high risk. But those multi-stage attacks represent a dramatically high risk. Um, so on the one hand, it's a much higher risk. But on the other hand, the fact that there is an offensive operation that is happening over time usually takes days to weeks for that operation to unfold in the network. You know, the time that it takes the attacker to find their way around the network, spread to different assets, right? Collect data from these assets. The time that it takes them to do it is actually an opportunity for enterprises that have a mature uh, strategy for incident detection and response to find that the, this thing is happening and cut that infection, chain, the chain of infection, way before this uh, incident reaches its impact stage. So there certainly is an opportunity there for more mature enterprises to mitigate that risk with, with a, a proper incident detection and response process. No, that brings up an interesting question for me. Uh, say I'm an organization who discovered such a multi-stage attack as it is going on. And the attackers have already planted some ransomware software, you know, on maybe several nodes on the in the network, but not all of them. Do I have anything that I can that I can I can do to prevent those uh, ransomware from detonating if if I detect the attack while it is going on? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the first thing uh, that you that you want to do is to make sure that these hosts are isolated from the rest of the network, right? And so, you have a, if you have a proper process in place and a technology stack to support it, that should be a process that should be fairly easeable, fairly easy to to accomplish. Right? So, the idea is to make sure that these first and foremost, these hosts are unable to impact other assets in the network, they get isolated. The second thing is to very quickly understand what changes the attacker had done on these compromised machines. Because oftentimes, it's not just about deploying that piece of ransomware on them. Oftentimes, it involves persistence mechanisms. Persistence means that once the attacker is in, it's gonna be very hard to get them out. Right. Those are ways for the attacker to keep coming back in. Even if you clean that ransomware out of that machine, the attacker will have a way to come back in and put it back in there. Right. So the idea is to, once you isolate them from the network, to understand exactly what type of changes the attacker had done on these machines and then be in a position to remediate those machines and undo those changes that were done by the attacker. And removing that ransomware is, is part of that. But if you do, if you do, if you have the protocol to do it and the playbook to do it right, then certainly is that there's an there's an opportunity there to remove that ransomware from these systems, you know, while avoiding the impact of it. Mm, but that requires the organization to be uh, meticulous in preparation for these kinds of events. I'm guessing because if you're not ready to it, while the attack is going on, it's probably too late to do anything serious by then, probably. So I want to take you to again to the 
bit of the bigger picture in the world of, of ransomware. And um, I mean, in the past few years, we've seen the development of what's called ransomware as a service. Now, I can see that service being I mean, easily providable when we are talking about a single stage ransom, because then all the attacker is doing is basically infecting the network and then automatically using the ransomware. But here we've got a method of operation which requires, I think, much more investment from the attacker. And it, as you said, it takes longer. So how do multi-stage attacks lend themselves to this kind of business? So the ransomware as a service um, ecosystem can basically serve two purposes. The first purpose, and that's actually the purpose for which it was created originally, is indeed to lower the bar for newcomer actors to start running a ransomware campaign, right? So the idea is that you don't really have to have a lot of infrastructure or a lot of know-how to run an effective ransomware campaign. You can go to someone that can provide you with the entire infrastructure. So all you need to do is to draft an email you know, put the ransomware as an attachment to that email and hit the send button, right? And money will start pouring into your Bitcoin wallet, right? And so that was the original model behind ransomware as a service. That's, you know, the, 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 I think in those, in those models, the service provider share is very aggressive. So the service provider takes somewhere between 50 and 80%. Oh, that's of, quite a lot. That's quite a lot, but they also do most of the work and take most of the risk, right? Uh, but that, that was the original intent of ransomware as a service. However, um, multi-stage ransomware campaigns represent an evolution that's happening in the cybercrime economy when there's a lot more collaboration between different actors and a lot more specialization. And as part of that evolution, ransomware as a service actors or operators, you know, created a new use case. The idea is to help a group of attackers Right, a group of threat actors uh, create another layer of an anonymization for a more sophisticated attack group. Right, so um, basically, uh, you know, the idea is that when if 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 you're operating as a, as a sophisticated group that breaches a target like Armin or or others, and you everything that you put in the target environment can be used as evidence to tie that can tie back to you, right? every unique fin fin digital fingerprint that you leave in that environment can tie back to the specific group that you have and to your future and past operations. So to a certain extent, the more the tools that you use are generic tools that are used by a lot of other people, the fingerprint that you leave is less unique, right? And it's harder to tie the activity back to your specific group. There's one thing I still don't understand in the service. What is the exact part of the service provider in that scenario? Is that supplying the tools or actually participating in the breaking into the network? So usually what the ransomware as a service, and that's, I think, a very interesting question because it, what we're seeing is, is specialization in this, in this economy. The ransomware as a service specializes in building the, the, the ransomware tool itself and the, the tool that when put on a machine will start encrypting the files in the best way possible. But they're also in charge of collecting the money and operating the call center, right? So when the, you know, when the, when the victim wants to communicate with someone, they would actually not be communicating with the group that might be the main group behind this. They will be communicating with a proxy 
that is the ransomware as a service provider. They're also going to be the one that would be collecting the Bitcoin or whatever other virtual currency the ransomware is paid in. And so it creates another barrier, right? Another layer of anonymization for the main group that operates the campaign, right? Uh, the economics of of the underworld of security is never ceases to amaze me <laughs> probably something very unique to humans that we 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 create economy from everything <laughs> it's amazing <laughs> yeah I think in in certain areas of the world in certain geographies those are considered you know half legitimate businesses and and they collaborate just like legitimate businesses collaborate yeah that's one of the problems <laughs> so in When, when we're talking about money and paying and economy, we have, I think, uh, the canonical question in this type of, of discussions. We have a, a question from a listener, John Folks, who writes, what is your stance on paying the ransom of an attack just to get back to business? And you mentioned Garmin, and I'm guessing this is the kind of question that was asked many times lately in Garmin's offices. <laughs> Yes, yes, I can imag- imagine so. And I have, no, I have no inside information into what happened at, at Garmin. I, you know, I'm, I'm seeing what's, uh, you know, what's, what's being said and, and written in, in the media, but I have been involved in, in other cases where I've had the inside view. And um, the first thing I want to say is that I think we all understand the importance uh, of not paying. Right, the ransom we understand why it fuels an economy that every defender has all you know every interest in having in, in having that econ- economy shut down um, having said that it's very very hard to put yourself in the shoes of someone that's been hit a business that's been hit with ransomware until you get to that place and understand the considerations so it's very easy to say I'm not going to pay anything if you haven't been hit with it And you're not facing the business consequences of it. And in some cases, it brings businesses to the brink of the brink of a bankruptcy and shutdown. Um, and so I think paying the ransom is is an option. It needs to be considered and weighed against other viable options as part of an instant response process. I think it needs to be considered against the you know the business impact of the The continued shutdown and the alternative cost of recovery, the assets that were impacted. Even if you consider paying the ransom, what I would recommend is uh, at the end of the day, those are people on the other side. It's not, it's not a machine, and they can be negotiated with. And every, at, at the end of the day, they're looking to make a, a, a payday, and very often you can... With some negotiation, you can get to a much better deal with them and treat this as, as a form of tuition, right? You've paid that as, as a tuition fee to learn what not to do next, right, and how to improve. So my, my, I guess my answer to this is generally we obviously don't want to consider this as a leading option, but in the real world, we need to think about this as one of our options when we encounter that. So we've seen many, many attacks against uh, municipalities across the world and many, many in the United States. And when it comes to municipalities and governments paying uh, the ransom, it's a more of a gray zone because, uh, I mean, if Garmin, as an example, paid some large sum of money, it's Garmin's money. 
But when a municipality or a government pays, it's our money. The citizens' tax pays money uh, that, uh, is, that goes to the, uh, the attackers. So, Isad, what's your opinion towards governments and cities? I mean, this is taxpayers' money, right? It is. Um, even though sometimes uh, more, more, more often than not, it is paid by, uh, by insurance companies as opposed to directly by the municipalities. At the end of the day, it's still taxpayers' money one way or the other. Um, and I think, I think it's, a, it's, it's um, different states, different countries take different approaches for that. Uh, I think, for example, if you look at the, uh, at the state of New York, uh, the state of New York has is currently looking into a, uh, a, leg- a legislation process or a proposed bill that will uh, make it illegal for a local or state government within New York to pay uh, pay a ransom. I think it's an interesting it's it's an interesting proposal. I think there are uh, similar proposals being considered in other states and in, in the U.S. And I think uh, if 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 those states would you know put a put a stake in the ground then uh, and draw a line in the sand, then others might follow, and that might create a more a more uh, a broader policy. Uh, but I think in the real in in reality, it's a very difficult uh, question to answer because what's on the line is on the one hand. Uh, we all understand that paying money to these cybercrime organizations doesn't end with more cybercrime. We understand that a lot of these uh, cybercrime groups are part of bigger conglomerates that are involved in a lot of other types of criminal activity. A lot of it doesn't happen in cyberspace. That's more traditional criminal activity. So we all understand that when we're paying ransom sums, especially hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars to these organizations, we are actually sponsoring, oftentimes, large criminal organizations. And we understand the challenges, the, the moral and the, 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 the I would say the, the physical challenges as well with, with what that means. On the other hand, we also need to understand that certain municipal infrastructure and state infrastructure um, you know, it, 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 it has lives depend on it. If certain services aren't working, then there is a heightened risk to, to people's lives. It's a very, very difficult question that legislators need to address and, you know, state and local government and administration need to address, but they need to address on a case-by-case basis at the end of the day, what, what's, what's the right thing to do for their constituents? They don't want to pay on the one hand, but if people's lives are at risk and the services that have been shut down, things like the uh, 911 call center, if that thing goes down, then people's lives are, are at risk. And the question is, what's more important? What's the right thing to do? And I, I think the legislation that certain legislators in New York and other states are promoting is, uh, is, is, an, interesting, is an interesting progression. But I think at the end of the day, uh, it should it this this type of decision should be trusted with the local and state administration to decide for their constituents what's going to be more important. Yes, I very much agree with you here, Israel. I think that it's important to realize that when it comes to municipalities and governments, I mean, they, the money they are paying is really the taxpayers' money, but the taxpayers are dependent on their services. And the way to probably to address the risk of ransomware 
is not uh, to try and uh, eliminate the possibility of paying because that's it, it seems to me personally to be somewhat unrealistic in the world it's 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 very uh, an idealistic approach to handling ransomware it should probably be addressed with proper regulation as as we address other challenges in in, in governmental agencies etc and Eliad I think you mentioned that we have two questions from the audience yes we have a bunch of uh, a bunch of questions so I will call on two listeners um, Andy Brody and Hans Christopher and I think uh, the first question is from Hans and uh, earlier maybe ten uh, minutes ago you were talking about the attackers covering their tracks using ransomware as a service as a means of covering their tracks and Hans here had a question related to deleting logs and and let me see if uh, Hans if you're available if you're able to uh, ask the question can you raise uh, your hand via the uh, the software here Hans can you hear us yeah hello hi hello can you hear me yes we can hi Hans thank you for joining us where are you coming from I- I'm from uh, Norway From Norway. So, uh, yeah. Beautiful, yes. beautiful country. <laughs> I think it was Douglas Adams who said that uh, Norway's designer got several prizes for, uh, <laughs> for its design. Um, thank you again, uh, yeah. Hans. And what is your question? Uh, my question is basically, uh, uh, what, what about log deletion uh, done by the attacker during the attack chain? Uh, have you seen that as part of the uh, multi-stage attacks observed uh, for example on your honeypots and uh, and how how does that impact uh, the response uh, for example when you, you when you want to restore stuff back to default how, how do you think about that great thank you very much Hans so Israel log deletion is that common yeah so I Hans, thank you for the question. The, um, the, the point to consider here is that multi-stage ransomware attacks are essentially hacking operations, right? There's not a lot of difference between a hacking operation that ends with data theft and a hacking operation that ends in a multi-stage hacking operation that ends with ransomware. It's just that the modernization method of these two types of attack groups is slightly different. But the techniques and tactics that they use and the way they run their operation and the way they manage uh, 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 their, their operational security, whether it comes to log deletion or other mechanisms, the way they manage their operational security during the operation is on par with what you will see with a sophisticated hacking operation. They'll delete logs, they'll try to obfuscate their tracks, they'll try to work through various anonymization infrastructures, they'll try to use other parties like the ransomware as a service or others to disguise and create additional layers of anonymity in front of them. They'll try to use generic tools instead of specific tools so they can, they, they can avoid leaving an identifiable fingerprint. Um, so you can, everything that you see in typical hacking operations, sophisticated hacking operations is what you can expect to see in a multi-stage ransomware campaign. It's just that a multi-stage ransomware campaign ends with re- a, a large scale denial of service and a lot of data stolen. In terms of, uh, of, of defense evasion, whether it is log deletion or, or other techniques, um, what I've found to be the most, one of the most important things that you can do, and I think Ron touched on it uh, a little while ago, which was it was the preparation for the incident. 
after the incident happens, you can go into various types of forensics activities, but those take time, right? You're wasting a lot of valuable time, right? During these activities, it's all about the preparation. So if you have the infrastructure in advance that collects those, that, that type of telemetry from your assets and stores that telemetry, logs, activity, all the behaviors that happen, on the different assets in your environment and stores that telemetry in a centralized location that allows you to, whether those assets were uh, breached or impacted and whether the attacker took any sort of defense evasion techniques while they're on target, the fact that you've collected the telemetry in advance allows you to run an effective investigation and roll out an effective remediation, whether the attacker is trying to run all sorts of defense evasion techniques or not. Eliad, I think you mentioned we have one more uh, optional question coming in from the audience. Yes, yes, we do. And uh, Andy Brody, it's your question. So uh, raise your hand. Okay, great. So uh, yeah, you talked uh, a couple of seconds ago, we talked about paying ransom. Uh, and uh, Israel, you talked about the, uh, the importance of having a, a system that can, can uh, uh, save artifacts from the environment and put them somewhere else. So in the case of a ransomware attack, it creates a sort of a back a backup, right? And Andy had a question about these uh, types of backups. So I'm going to bring them on the air so he can ask you. Can you hear us, Andy? Hello. Hi, Andy. Hi there. Where are you from? Uh, I'm in Cambridge in the UK. Cambridge. Uh, fantastic. I can, hear, I can hear by your accent that you're from the UK. Uh, <laughs> thank, you, <laughs> thank you for joining us. What's your question, Andy? So many attackers are very smart and they're going to know that companies and individuals will have backups. So my question is, what kind of techniques do ransomware attackers use to mitigate backups as a way of avoiding paying a ransom? And more importantly, what can we do to defend against those techniques? Mm -hmm. That's a fantastic question. <laughs> Thank you very much. Andy. Yeah, 100%. So there are a couple of techniques uh, that attackers use. The uh, first one is very simple uh, and very straightforward. It's about removing backups that are on the machines that they attack, right? So a lot of organizations as a way to do, I would say cost-effective backuping, they use on-machine backups. Think uh, things like uh, the uh, Windows shadow copies, right? Especially for workstations, it's a very popular backup system. The only challenge with that backup system is that all the backups are saved on the machine they get encrypted uh, along with the ransom, the other data, I'm guessing. There we go. And some attackers even take an extra, the extra step and they actually proactively delete those backups before they encrypt the machine. Right? So that's one technique that is extremely common, to, mostly to single-stage ransomware campaigns. That when they detonate, they remove every, every local copy of, of, of a backup, uh, of, of backup data. The uh, second thing that they do, and that's a trait of multi-stage ransomware attacks, they uh, try to impact large, a large-scale environment. Right? The idea is that backups take time to recover from. Sometimes if an organization doesn't test those backups on a regular basis, they, they won't even necessarily work when they try to recover from them, not a large scale. And sometimes, even if you recover from backups, they don't give you ex bring you exactly to the same point that you were in when the ransomware hit. They might get you to a week prior to that point. If, for example, you're using a, a weekly backup 
of these of these environments. So by hitting a large scale environment, right, impacting a lot of assets, you're creating a situation that even if an organization has um, a working backups, there is a high cost associated with the attempt to recover from backups. And there is also the risk of not getting to the desired results, whether it is that the backups not, are not working or that they will not get you to the very moment, the same very, uh, moment in time that you were in when the ransomware hit. The third tactic, and it's also very common for multi-stage ransomware attacks, but also for some of the single-stage ransomware strains, and that is to target the system and not just the data, right? So the idea is that, for example, when they land on a, uh, an, a Windows Active Directory, they will render the domain controller inoperable. So they're not going to just encrypt the data. They're going to make sure that the system, you can't use the system itself. They corrupt the system itself. And the reason is that most organizations that do backups do data backups and not system backups. They, you know, they back up the actual business data that they're processing on these systems. But if the operating system itself is corrupted, then oftentimes these organizations need to install everything from scratch and set up everything from scratch, which is an operational nightmare when you combine it with a large scale impact in the network. So those are the most common uh, techniques that ransomware uh, actors use to um, render backups fairly useless. The other component that they're doing, and we're seeing this more and more in, in multi-stage ransomware attacks, is making sure that they don't just create a denial of service, but they also create other leverage points. So they exfiltrate data from the environment. They take huge amounts of data, business data, might be private data, maybe personal data uh, um, from the environment. And they also take user credentials from the environment. And as part of the ransom demand, they're also usually threatening to expose that data or to sell that data within a certain period of time if the ransom demand isn't met, right? So the idea is, is to, on the one hand, render backupping system as useless as possible, while at the same time create additional leverage points, even if the organization does have a certain level of backups, create additional leverage points to increase the probability of, 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 of that ransom demand being met. Yes, uh, you know, I mean, Andy's question here exposed, you know, an angle which I never gave much thought to uh, when we talked about multi-stage ransomware, and that it kind of makes back uh, backups, uh, which is, as we said, the usual way we try to mitigate the risk of ransomware, they make them much less effective because, as you said, Israel, the damage is so widespread and so diverse that backups are no longer the uh, preferred or, or the effective solution. And a great question, and you exposed something very interesting here. So I want us to uh, uh, go ahead to the second part of our, uh, of our uh, live event today, which is going to be a bit more general. I mean, you'll have some, you know, some opportunity to talk a bit, a bit more personal and interesting, maybe, you know, kind of meta questions. Uh, what drew you, Israel, personally, cybersecurity <laughs> um, well I, I started my career in the uh, in the Israeli Defense Forces and um, you know there's not you know you don't get a lot of options <laughs> so to speak <laughs> I just had I just had the good fortune of being recruited into a unit 
that focused on that as a subject matter. But quite honestly, I think that it wasn't a complete coincidence because I, I think there are certain lines of characters that draw you into that type of life, right? especially when we talk about offensive cyber. You were a computer kid. As a kid, you, you were deep into computers? I was not. I was actually a lot more into electronics and physics, mathematics as, as, as a kid. Uh, and then I transitioned into computers during, uh, during my college, college time and, and as I transitioned into, uh, into, uh, into the military. Um, and I th- but I think there's, there's, a, there's a character line that sort of draws you in that direction, which is that need to break things, right? And so you try to understand how things work and you try to understand how to, you know, make them do things that they were not necessarily built to do. And uh, I think you can come at it from multiple different directions. I think one of the first experiences that I had with this was actually on the math, you know, in the mathematics area, right? I, I had the good fortune of being a student of Adi Shamil, Professor Adi Shamil. Uh, the famous uh, Adi Shamil from the RSA encryption, if I from recall RSA, correctly. One, one, one of the, That's one the of S the, uh, in RSA. One, one of the RSA team. And he's, uh, he's uh, really a, a, a phenomenon. In, in that space and, and I you know the, the conversation and, and what I was able to learn was mostly about cryptography but cryptography has its flip side of the cone which is crypto analysis and how you take certain certain encryption mechanisms and identify vulnerabilities in them so you can essentially get back the decrypted text even though you don't have the decryption key and so I think you can get into this world from a lot of different directions but it's I think it's that character line of uh, looking at something and not necessarily taking it for what it is and and just you know using it for its functions but thinking what else can you do with it and can you make it do something that it wasn't designed to do and maybe even something that you You know the designers didn't actually want it to do yeah that's the basic hackers mindset from back from the MIT days when the term hacker was first first coined and it was never meant to be coined as a kind of um, uh, a malicious intent kind of hacking it was tinkering I think run we are we're arriving at the end of the uh, the hour that we have with our with our audience so I'm um, uh, wondering if you have any you Any final thoughts or any any uh, uh, final words you'd like to say Israel that's that's the question that I turn to you first well you know I think the um, the topic of our conversation was or I think one of the uh, top topics for a conversation was uh, multi-stage ransomware attacks and and how we've identified that trend uh, in in a honeypot of the increased number and frequency of these attacks and Uh, against uh, both critical infrastructure but as well as other businesses and I, I think this is uh, from my perspective I think the, the biggest uh, takeaway from this is that we need to mature the way we the way we, we the way we defend our networks and we need to start thinking not so much about you know there's a strain of malware can I stop it can I not stop it I think those questions become you You know increasingly irrelevant they're important but increasingly irrelevant and I think the more important question is are we are we doing it right and are we able to effectively 
find bad things that are happening in our environment? Are we able to effectively, with the team that we have, and it might be a small team, are we able to effectively understand it? Are we able to effectively take action before we, you know, I sometimes refer to it as a left of the bag, before we meet the impact of the incident? I think as the aggressors evolve, and create their own ecosystem and their own, you know, their own collaborations and pose higher and higher risks to us. We as defenders need to evolve and start thinking, need to start thinking in terms of, are we doing the right thing? And can we do it quickly enough and efficiently enough? I very much agree with the, with, with what you call it. I mean, it's, it's evolution. Um, I asked you what drew you to cybersecurity. And if I have to answer that question myself, it kind of ties in with what we learned today from this conversation, because what drew me to cybersecurity is the constant change. Everything is changing. You can never, you can never stop running, because if you stop running, you'll go backwards, <laughs> so to speak. And I think that what we saw today from the conversation is that even a phenomena as young as ransomware. I mean, ransomware really took off only in the last few years. If you recall, we discussed that on a previous episode of Malicious Life. The very first ransomware attacks back from the AIDS virus uh, in the late 1980s and even to the early 2000s were very ineffective and they were not a real threat. Then ransomware, what we call single-stage ransomware now, we have to s change the terminology again. Uh, it took off only in the last five, six years, and here again we have a new form of attack or let's see, uh, let's say a modification, uh, a change, an evolution of the attack, which renders our normal way of handling these kinds of attack ops almost obsolete, as discussed with backups. And that's, I think, part of my fascination with this topic because it's kind of technology on steroids, I would call it, along with many, many intersecting uh, ideas about economy and human psychology, which is amazing. So Israel, thank you very much for joining us. I, uh, uh, I think it was a fantastic conversation. I would like to uh, thank... Uh, Nate Nelson, who is here with us today and listening. And thank, uh, thanks also to Eliad uh, behind the scenes here in the conference and uh, along every episode of Malicious Life. And thank you, our listeners, both uh, listening, to, listening to us live right now and those of you who are listening to the episode, which will be aired probably in the next few days. Uh, it is your support and encouragement which allows us to keep going uh, every day so thank you all and i hope you had a great time and you learned new things and uh, we'll see you again next week in a new episode of malicious life thank you bye bye